church that's got people involved in every uh, walk of life, and especially people that are stepping up and saying, I'll shoulder the responsibility. I'll lovingly, prayerfully shoulder uh, the responsibility for making decisions which could have a great impact on the future of people's lives. Hi, my name's John. Uh, I've been a member of this church for many years, although for uh, much of the last 10 years I've been living with my family uh, in the northeast of England, been involved in working with asylum seekers and refugees, food bank, uh, debt relief, as well as uh, working with a local church. I'm married, I've got three kids, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my privilege to be speaking to you this morning. As a church, we're in a series called Living the Gospel. You meet those people, don't you? Maybe down the pub, and they talk such a good game. They know all the rules, and they're full of how it should be done. And you say, oh, do you play? No. Do you manage? No. Do you go to the games? No. Anyone can have head knowledge and talk a good talk. And we looked at a series on basically knowing the gospel, understanding the gospel before. And that's fantastic, and you need that first as your foundation. But what we know has to come into practice and action. And so this series is so significant, living the gospel. Not just knowing it, not just talking it, but living the gospel. And we need one another, don't we? We need accountability. We need uh, friendship and support to do that. Last week, Andrew, one of the other pastors here, he spoke on being a gospel community. And he said we're meant to love each other because this love of God has been poured into our hearts. We of all communities on the earth should love each other. And he actually, he took us to a Bible passage which shows if you want to know whether you are part of God's community, God's family, you will be marked by loving one another. That's how you know. If you go somewhere and people say, we're Christians, and all there is is hatred, prejudice, backbiting, probably not. Probably not. It's just a label on the outside. It's not inside. God's people should be marked by love for one another. And then Andrew explained that it's actually when we live like that, when we live the gospel, when we love one another, laying our lives down for one another, being in and out of each other's lives, being honest and real with each other, everyone else goes, wow, how do you do that? Because you're not all the same. I'd get it if you're a bunch of teenagers or a bunch of Spurs fans or fishermen or cyclists. You know, you've all got something in common, but you lot, you're just from every walk of life, every background, every age, every interest. How can you love one another? I don't get it. And that's where we're able to say, no, let me introduce you to somebody. Let me introduce you to Jesus that Dave was talking about, which we were singing about. So living the gospel, being a gospel community. What I've been tasked with talking about this morning, what I was asked to talk about, is gospel passion, or I want to call it gospel fight. Because we are a loving community, but we're more like a band of brothers than a, a nice modern family going on a summer holiday. We are a loving community, but we're more like a band of brothers engaged in a fight than we are just a nice peacetime family going on a summer holiday. You see, Jesus is a loving saviour, 
but he had to fight and go all the way to the cross and lay his life down so that your sin and your shame could be covered and paid for. And we're a loving community, but actually, we also are called to fight. Now, it's very important that what I say is biblically based, not just my opinion, that actually it's, it's better to, to test what I'm saying against Scripture and study it than just accept it. It's called more honourable in the Bible. So let me try and put a case for you that we're called to fight. I think it's one of the ways of looking at the big story, the big picture of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. Adam wasn't prepared, didn't have his guard up, was tempted, sinned, and lost everything. He lost everything. And since then, since it all began in the Garden of Eden, there's been war and strife and fighting. There's a promise which comes right back in the Garden of Eden that when God meets Adam after he sinned and says, look, this fight is going to continue and what's going to happen that the serpent that, that te- tempted Adam, it says, one day someone's going to come, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. There's going to be a battle and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Since that time, the battle's been ongoing. There are Five references to war in Exodus, 21 references to war in Numbers, 10 in Deuteronomy, these are books of the Bible in the Old Testament, 17 in Joshua, 10 in Judges, 17 in 1 and 2 Samuel. The book of Psalms, which is a book of worship songs for God's people, has eight references to battle or war and is written largely by David, who was known as a man of war. Cain killed Abel, Moses had to battle Pharaoh to set the people free, Joshua fought to enter the promised land, David had to fight Goliath so that the people of God weren't enslaved. In fact, one of God's names which reflects his character is the Lord of hosts or armies, which, is used, which means he's sovereign over all power armies uh, on, on the earth, is used 44 times in the Old Testament. Ah, I hear you say, But then Jesus comes. He's a pacifist, isn't he? He said, don't take up sword. That's not how my kingdom comes. Yes, there's a change that comes, but the battle doesn't get less. It intensifies. It gets more. Herod tries to kill Jesus before he can become king. Jesus taught that his kingdom forcefully advances and violence is done against it. John says that you can summarize why Jesus came as he came to destroy the works of the evil one. Jesus was tempted by the devil. People once picked up stones to kill him. They tried to throw him over a cliff. He was falsely accused. He was mocked. He was beaten. And he ended up crucified on a bloody, on a cross. That sounds like a battle to me. That sounds like war to me. We know that Jesus overcame He didn't stay dead, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, he poured out his Holy Spirit, and he birthed this thing called the church, the people of God. Um, The battle continues for us. You get phrases like this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. The church is in a battle. Paul writes to Timothy, a young leader, fight the good fight of faith. Being a Christian is like a battle. He also says, share in suffering as a good soldier of King Jesus. In our modern world, with our modern sensibilities, we love the family uh, 
of God, don't we? We love how the Bible talks about us being family, loving one another, mums, dad. We're not so keen on the war stuff. But we need to be ready because this family fights. This family's in a battle. The decisive victory's been won, but it won't finish until Jesus comes again. Finally, in Revelation, we see the end, the, it reveals the cosmic battle that's going on behind the scenes, and we have a great description of Jesus, and I love this, so I'm going to read it to you. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. It's talking about Jesus. The one sitting on the horse is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one but himself knows. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is a warrior. We follow a warrior. But we fight not against people. We fight for people. We fight not against people. We fight for people. There's a hymn that says, what, talking about on the cross, says, he fights for breath. He fights for me. And when he wins you, you join his fight. You join his fight. So, there was a battle in the garden. There was a battle at the cross where the decisive victory was won. But the battle goes on until he comes again. Not just as biblically it tells us we're in a battle. I'll be honest now with you. If you live with yourself for any length of time as a Christian, you know you're in a battle, don't you? When you hit those patterns of behaviours, those thought patterns, those things you do, you think, ah, oh, we ended up here. How did I get here again? Why did I say that again? It's a battle to live right, isn't it? Whether you're married, it's a battle, isn't it, sometimes? You think, well, I thought we loved each other and made commitments. Why is it so hard sometimes? Or maybe it's single, and there's a battle being single. There's a battle bringing up children, isn't it? This, this, this produ you produce this from this love, and when they're born, you think, I don't think I could ever love anything more. And then there comes times, maybe as teenagers, whatever, you think, why is it such a battle? You see, what happens in the Garden of Eden affects everything. Affects everything. So there's a battle personally. There's also a battle globally. Because if you take God out of the equation and you go with the, what the world believes, what the world tells you, we're all progressing it's all getting better. That's right. That's why poverty's decreasing and slavery's going and sexual exploitation isn't anymore. And governments always rule on behalf of their people and business seeks the common good. It's real. The battle's real. And I suppose I've convinced you really now, haven't I? Humanity's in a fight. The church is in a fight. We are in a fight. And I'm passionate about that fight. And I know many of you are here. I'm going to quickly pray, and then we're going to read some scripture. Father God, I pray this morning 
Well, I thank you for what we've heard already. I thank you that you fought for us, you rescued us. I thank you that you have made us who were not a people, the people of God. I thank you we're just not a nice family on a summer holiday, but we're a family that fights. I thank you we're not supposed to fight against people, against each other, but we fight for people. And I pray this morning we would be encouraged and inspired to fight more. Give us passion for the fight this morning, I pray. Amen. Okay, I would like us to turn, if we can, to Luke chapter 8. So, as a family, we've been watching on TV the uh, SAS stuff. You know when they've got a group of ex-servicemen, uh, uh, they're a bit sadistic. They're like, what are we going to do now we've finished fighting? I know, let's get some ordinary civilians that think they're quite tough and let's pe- put them through hell. Let's put, uh, put them through the SAS training uh, camp. Let's see if they've got what it takes. And what we're going to do now is we're going to read the training camp that Jesus puts his disciples through to get them ready for the fight. And it's in Luke, it starts in Luke, uh, Luke 8, verse 22, and it goes all the way through to the beginning of chapter 9. So it's quite a bit, so we're going to read it together. So Luke 8, verse 22, welcome to Jesus' training camp for you SAS soldiers. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, they fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, where Jesus, when Jesus had stepped onto land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but amongst the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not tempt, torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would not break. But he would break the bonds and dry, driven by, be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus asked him, "What's your name?" And he said, "Legion," for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man, entered the pigs and made the herd rush down the steep bank into the lake to be drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and to the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus, Jesus had done for him. 
Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, she touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I know that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more." But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given for her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Wow. Wow. We follow someone who fights, don't we? You notice how much fear comes. There's fear about this and there's fear of Jesus. That's what happens in a battle. There's fear, isn't there, that has to be overcome. Anyway, what I get from this, when Jesus calms a storm, casts out demons, cures a sickness, calls a girl back from the dead, then gathers his disciples and say, now you do it. Now you go in my name which hasn't changed for us. What I get from this is uh, four things. Number one, he is Lord. He is Lord over every and any situation. Whatever the outcome, he is Lord. That's the first thing he's teaching his disciples. He says, come with me. One, two, three, four situations, all declaring, I'm Lord. The second thing I get is, He brings his kingdom to unexpected people and unexpected places. He brings his kingdom to unexpected people and unexpected places. The third thing I get is who he fights for. He fights for the helpless. He fights for those who are unclean. And he fights for those that are in the grip of death. And finally, what I get from this, he calls me. He calls you to do the same. So, first point. He is Lord over every situation and circumstance. We've got to get this deep down in our, in, in our boots, in our roots. Because if we don't understand that he's Lord in every situation, 
we will be overcome, even as Christians, by some situations. You notice that Jesus initiates. He says to the disciples, you come with me. You come with me. And he takes them on the water, and this storm hits. says, we're going to drown. I don't think this is just, oh, we're going to drown. I th- they, they reg- some of them were fishermen. They knew this, that we are going to drown. It's a statement of fact. And Jesus gets up. He stills the storm. And there's two key questions that Luke draws out. Jesus says, where's your faith? And I don't think he's saying, where's your faith? Come on. I think he's saying, where is your faith? Where is your faith, disciples? Where is your faith, church? What is your faith in? And when it's all going well, it's in Jesus. As soon as it's not, my eyes are off him. They were getting it, weren't they? Because they went and woke Jesus. Not someone used to fishing and sailing. And they went, so they were getting it. They went and woke Jesus. He says, look, this is the point of what's going on now as he stills the storm. He says, where's your faith? And this is the point. If we don't know personal victory and triumph in our own life over difficult circumstances and situations, we won't be able to stand and fight for others out there. It's all the way through the Bible. Jesus is tempted by the devil and has to overcome the temptations in the desert before he engages in his public ministry. Moses was forgotten, a fugitive, a failure in the desert before God called him back to say, right, now lead my people. Joseph had to go through the challenge of financial integrity, sexual purity, and the big one, constant, repeated disappointment before he was raised to the place of highest honour. Not for himself, but to feed both the church and the world. Both the church and the world. David learnt to fight with the lion and the bear before he became king. The disciples are now being taught in their own, they're they're fearing for their own life. And Jesus is saying, where is your faith? In order to be successful as a church, we can never ever leave personal discipline, personal discipleship, personally saying to people, pray with me, I'm drowning, pray with me. Help me. Where's my faith? Jesus, where's my faith? Because things are so difficult. And in those times, as difficult and as horrible as they are, your roots go deep and you get something. You know something. Before, you knew the gospel in your head. You knew Jesus was Lord. And as you walk through it, then you really know the gospel in experience. So then you can march out with confidence and security with everything you're going to face. The naked man, the demons, sickness, death. You think, I know this because he fought for me. I know this because he's been Lord in my life. That's the point of it. And this story is supposed to make us remember Jonah. The way Luke's written this, it's supposed to make us go, I think this reminds me of another storm, another potential drowning, where there was a sacrifice that calmed the storm. It's supposed to remind us of the Old Testament, because the new is based on the old. And in the story of Jonah, again, God initiates and says to Jonah, I want you to go, I want you to go. I want you to go. And Jonah says, not them. They're not, not, not them. I'm not going to the other side. I'm not going to them. And he faces being drowned, and we know that he's thrown over the side. Uh, uh, it's like a picture of death, and a fish comes and, and rescues him. Um, it's a picture of Christ who's going to die for us. But Jonah was sent. And there's a really interesting passage 
in, at the end of Jonah, the last verse, when God says to Jonah, who didn't want to go, should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, where there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many cattle. God cares so much. And it, it's true that we're a loving community and God uh, loves his church. That's true. And focusing on church and building church is so important. We're the people of God. We're his bride. We're being prepared for him. But the love of God should go out from the church to others because God cares more than you think. God cares more than we think. He cares about 120,000 people and the animals. And the animals. He cares about 120,000 people and the animals for different reasons. And that's why Jesus is saying to the disciples, come to the other side. The other side is where the Gentiles were. So in the north of uh, Palestine, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles because there was a few. But it still had Jewish roots. The other side was Gentiles, which is why there's pigs there, because Jewish people don't eat pork. It's like, why would I want to go over there to the other side? And Jesus is teaching his disciples, don't get so focused on yourselves, if you like, church, that we forget the other side, because God cares. The next situation I find is he brings his kingdom to unexpected people and unexpected places. You see, the Bible says he's not willing for any to perish, but all to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus wants us to go to places that are not popular, where other people fear to go. That's what the church is supposed to do. And the reason for that, I, how do I know that? Is because in every story, these people are what's called unclean. So the naked man with demons was unclean. That would mean in Jewish society, he could have no community. He could have no community. He wasn't allowed into the worship setting. The woman with the issue of blood, if you had discharge from your body, you were unclean. You could not participate. You were left outside, isolated, alone. And if there was a dead body, the girl that's dead, she is not able to, uh, to be part of it, obviously, because she's dead. But the people that even touched the dead body were not able to, if you around the dead body, to be part of the commun worshipping community. You were isolated. We know for the woman, her isolation had caused absolute poverty. She spent everything she had. We know for the, ga the, the, the guy with demons, not only had it stripped him of all his money and possessions, it had stripped him of his dignity. And ultimately, for the girl, it had brought death. But where was the church? That's the question we can ask, because Jesus teaches his disciples. That's where we should go. We should go to the helpless. We should go to the unclean. So I'm, and I'm jumping, it's because time's running out. We should go to the helpless and the unclean. The disciples were helpless and feared they were going to drown. The gathering demoniac, the, the demons would drive him into the wilderness, in amongst the tombs, naked. And we know when the demons were cast out of him, he then, they went into the pigs and they, they sent the pigs down to drown. That's a picture of what they wanted to do to that man. The, they wanted to destroy him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to degrade him first. The woman with the issue of blood, spent. Physically, emotionally, economically spent. But what's worse is she can't go to a 
friends for help. She's isolated. And obviously there's the, the girl that's dead. We're supposed to go to the helpless. We're supposed to go to the unclean. Now, I wanted to encourage us as a church that we're involved with TLG. We're involved with the food bank. We're involved with pregnancy crisis. We're involved in so much. We're involved in so much. And some of you open your homes and you have children and other people in and you, you give your life 24-7. We're involved in so much. I wanted to encourage us, but I wanted to inspire us. There's more, isn't there? There's more homes that should be open to the helpless, the unclean. There's more people should engage in the fight. There's more we can do as a church. That's what basically I'm calling us to here. Gospel passion, gospel fight. And I, I, as I was praying and, and carrying this, I believe God is going to, go, going to highlight some of you. It's like he's going to go, you, open your home. You, what about this people group? I don't mean like a, another people group. What about the homeless, the, the addicts? What about the victims of abuse or abusers. God says, build the church, yes. Be a worshipping, loving community, but fight. But fight. It says in Scripture, don't get involved in civilian affairs. Come on, church. It's time for some of us to put away some civilian affairs. The battle rages. So, he... We have to learn it first ourselves. He is Lord. We have to take the kingdom to unexpected people and places. We fight for the helpless, those that need help to come from outside themselves, that are overwhelmed in their situation. He stills the storm, subdues the demons, stops the bleeding, and summons back from death. He goes to the unclean, those facing isolation, humiliation, poverty. Some of them are dangerous, demonic, and disgusting. Some of them are dangerous, demonic, and disgusting. But the wonderful thing is, when he touches them, they become clean. What should happen when you touch something unclean is you become unclean. That's what should happen, not when Jesus touches it. When Jesus touches someone unclean, they, he is not contaminated. His holiness, his purity, his power makes them clean. Church, how can we open our home? to the marginalised, the disenfranchised, the broken. How can we do these projects? How can we go to abusers and uh, victims and abusers? Because when you do, you won't be uncontaminated. You will make them clean. Rather than you being contaminated. What about my family? My, you won't be contaminated because you have the Spirit of God in you. What will happen as the church goes is you will make them clean. It talks in the scripture about when the church goes, when the Holy Spirit goes, about water going to the desert places and even in salt places and causing life. Everywhere the river goes, it produces life. Everywhere the river goes, it produces life. This is the truth. We are called to go where no one else will go. We are called to go where no one else will, will go because it's too dangerous, it's too evil. It's too disgusting. You should find the church there. You should find the church there. He fights for me, breath. He fights for me, loosing sinners for eternity. And then he calls me to do the same. To finish with things. Let me read you a couple of the last category, he fights for those in the grip of death. 
Sometimes there's literal death, and sometimes we get the privilege of saying to someone, little girl, I say to you, get up. And he literally gives you back from the dead sometimes. That's a miracle. It's not an often. It's not a normal. It's a miracle. We don't see that much. But actually, it's not actually about physical death. That's why Luke's put these four pictures together, because the disciples are facing death. The guy with the demons was facing death. That's why the pigs ran away. The woman with constant bleeding, in the end, is going to die if it's not dealt with. And the, the girl at the end actually is death. Luke has put them together like a great artist to say, they are facing death. They are facing a lost eternity. Go, church, and tell them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Church, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You are no fool if you give what you cannot keep, your life, to gain what you cannot lose. His well done. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me shall live, even if they die. Jesus calls them together in chapter 9. Have you been called by him? He gives them authority over demons and to cure diseases. Has he given you authority? He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Have you been sent out? And they went, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Will you? I've got a short video to watch, and then we'll finish. Thank you. The video link has not been downloaded.